0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you take them please and turn to the Gospel of Matthew? There's one verse of Scripture that I want to use today as a foundation for the message, which is entitled, First Things First. As you know, we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, following the idea and theme of how to live according to Jesus, the greatest sermon that has ever been preached by the greatest person who ever lived, recorded in the greatest book that has ever been written, God's Holy Word. And we're looking at the words of Jesus, discovering how He desires for us to live. He set the pattern for us. He not only taught us, but He also set the example whereby we are to live and to follow in His steps. And so today I want to lift this one verse of scripture, verse 33, not out of context, but simply to take the theme that's there and use it to share some thoughts with you. So Matthew chapter six, beginning with verse 33, where Jesus said, but seek first His kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness well as you know fall is almost here just a few weeks away but we have already entered the football spirit and the football season. Many teams are already practicing. The Lumberjacks are practicing. There were some uh, preseason games last evening on television, and it won't be long until the National Football League and all the teams there uh, will be involved in, in playing football. And as we think about football, I, I think about uh, the late Tom Landry, Uh, Tom Landry, in my opinion, and a lot of other opinions of people believe that he was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, coach uh, who who ever lived and coached the game of football. Uh, He was and is uh, in the NFL Hall of Fame. He won 20 consecutive winning seasons. There were 13 divisional championships, five trips to the Super Bowl, two world championship titles. He was a wonderful man. Not only as a coach, but as an individual and especially as a Christian. Running a professional football team can be a hectic job, but Coach Landry completed the task successfully because his priorities were right. He once said, Winning a football game isn't the end of all things. It's got a priority, but it's not number one in my life, he said. This creates for me a certain amount of calmness, even though I'm human enough to suffer when we lose. Coach Landry's greatest legacy and his highest priority in life was his Christian faith. He said on one occasion, this is really the most important factor in my life, my faith in Jesus Christ. When you accept Christ, he becomes first in your life, and it's this priority That gives me a peace in my heart. This all began back in 1958 when Coach Landry was invited to attend a Bible uh, discussion group, and uh, he found there the answer that gave him uh, the peace of heart that he had longed for for so long. God began to to open Coach Landry's eyes to the differences between just simply a church goer and uh, being a good person and what it meant to be a true Christian. Again, quoting Coach Landry, he said, "'I committed my life to Christ "'and discovered what Jesus meant when he said, "'I have come that you might have life "'and that you might have it more abundantly.'" So he had his priorities right. Had you asked him, he said, "'My priorities are God first, family second, "'and football third.'" That wasn't him saying that football didn't matter. It simply said, my priorities are God comes first. First things first. God first. Family second. And football third. Today I want to take this verse of scripture and share some thoughts with you from the other words of our Lord as found in the Gospel of Matthew about your priorities. Putting things in their proper order. God first. Family second. And then of course, whatever else in your life, third. So let's begin, please. I hope you got your bulletin there. The outline is in your bulletin there. You can follow along as we work our way through this. So first things first. First of all, Jesus said, first your brother and then your gift. So if you would look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 24. Matthew five twenty-four, Jesus is talking about worship. You know, worship is important. And part of worship uh, is bringing an offering unto the Lord. The Bible says in Psalm 96, verse 8, bring an offering and come into his courts. And so bringing an offering to the Lord uh, is certainly an act of worship on our part, along with music and worship and uh, song and so forth and the preaching of God's word. But in Matthew chapter 5, this is what Jesus talked about when he said, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, in verse 23 it says, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering.'" So Jesus was saying, yes, worship is extremely important. God created us to worship Him. And when we come to worship the Lord and we bring an offering and we suddenly, the Holy Spirit impresses on our minds that, you know, there, there is a, a problem between myself and another individual. Things have been said, certain things have been done that has uh, ruptured our fellowship, our relationship. There's a barrier between us and them and things just aren't Right? And Jesus is saying, if you have someone who has, the King James says, ought against you, the new uh, American Standard Bible says, if someone has something against you, the King James says, someone has ought against you. Uh, the J.B. Phillips paraphrase uses the word grievance. If someone has a grievance against you, you're to leave that gift at the altar. Now We don't bring gifts to the altar. We take up offering uh, through the offering plates or people drop it off in the, uh, at the office during the week or uh, mail it to us or whatever. Don't, don't stop that. Uh, we, we need your, your tithes and your offerings. Uh, but uh, Jesus is simply saying, if you're going to worship and uh, you're, you're there and suddenly the Holy Spirit impresses on you, there's a problem there between you and somebody else then you're to stop whatever it is you're doing and you're to go and seek out your brother and whatever the differences are, you're to try the best you can to straighten those things out and then come back and worship. Reminded me of the first act of worship that's recorded in the Bible in the book of Genesis, the worship of Cain and Abel. And you'll remember according to the fourth chapter of Genesis that Cain brought, uh, of course, his uh, his offering unto the Lord and, and it was uh, acceptable. Uh, was not acceptable because Cain was a farmer and, and uh, it was the fruit of the, the ground. And, and the Lord, I, I don't know when and where uh, Adam must have explained to his two sons what it meant to worship the Lord and what was the proper way to, to approach the Lord. But they were not to approach the Lord w- without having a blood sacrifice. And, uh, and uh, Cain brought, instead of a, a blood sacrifice, he brought the fruit of his hands. Uh, you, you cannot meet the, the, the requirements of the Lord by the fruit of your hands, by what you do and the works that you perform. It's all by grace, not of works, lest anybody should boast. And so his offering was rejected. Uh, Abel, on the other hand, uh, did bring a blood sacrifice, and it was accepted. Well, there was a rift now between Cain and Abel. And, uh, and the Lord talked to Cain, and he said, Look, if you'll do what is required of you, if you approach me in the right way, you will be accepted. Well, he didn't like that idea either. And so he became angry with his brother. He rose up and slew his brother. And the Lord, of course, came to him. He said, The blood is on the ground of your brother. Where is your brother? He said, Am I my brother's keeper? So there was this rift between Cain and Abel, and it interrupted their worship. There's another place in the Bible, in the 18th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus gives us the course to set out that if there is a problem in the church or a problem among you, uh, your people, uh, you're, you're to go to that person. If you're a single individual and you have a problem with somebody, you go to them try to work it out. If that doesn't work, then you take two or three others and all together you go and try to work it out. If that doesn't work, then you bring it to the church and before them. In 1 John chapter 4... Uh, the Bible tells us that uh, uh, we are to pray for one another. We are to love for one another. And you know, when, when there's a rift between you and another individual, who you are expected to do, take the initiative to go to that individual and try to straighten things out. And you might say, well, Pastor, what do you do if you do that and it still doesn't work? Well, often use the illustration of playing tennis. Uh, if you know anything at all about tennis, you know that if you're the server, It's your responsibility to get the tennis ball over the net. Once the tennis ball gets over the net, it ceases to be your responsibility. It now becomes the other person's responsibility to get it back over to you. When you have done everything that you know to do, to go to your friend, go to the individual with whom you have a problem or they have a problem with you, and you try to straighten it out, hopefully and prayerfully, God will bless that and that will make it possible. If not, then what you refer or refer back to is prayer. You pray for, you continue to put that person on your prayer list. You pray for that individual and you pray that over time, God the Holy Spirit will soften that person's heart and somehow a resolution can be resolved. But Jesus is saying when you come to worship, and if there's something between you and another individual, then you go get it straightened out. Do that first, and then you come and worship me. Notice the second thing. Not only first your brother and then your gift, the second thing is first the spiritual and then the temporal. Look at chapter 6 in Matthew. Chapter 6, verse 33, the verse that I started with. Matthew 6, 33 says, But seek first the kingdom, his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now the word seek is a command. It's in the, what we call the imperative mood. It's an order, it's a command. Jesus didn't say this is optional, take it or leave it. Uh, No, he said you are my follower, you are my child, you are a disciple, you are a born again child of the Lord. Uh, You are to seek first the kingdom of God. The idea of seek also carries the idea of of a continual process. This is not just a Sunday thing that you do, it's an everyday thing that you do. Every day of your life, you're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this takes great effort. You have to strive with eagerness and earnestness in wanting to let God's kingdom be first in your life. It requires a lot of effort. It requires a lot of energy on your part to put God first and his kingdom first and his righteousness first. Seek continually with great earnestness and all of your energy in to putting his kingdom first and his righteousness first. Now, when you put the kingdom of God first, that means he rules and reigns and that you are to be submissive unto the Lord. We looked earlier in our series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount uh, at the Lord's Prayer, what's called the Lord's Prayer. Actually, it's the model prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17. What we normally call the Lord's Prayer is the model prayer. It's an example that Jesus said, according to Luke's gospel, it was at the request of the disciples, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so the Lord gave what we call the Lord's Prayer. Actually, it was a a sample, a pattern, a model prayer. And among the things that he said you are to pray for is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I am to pray and to work toward and to seek for God's kingdom to come on earth in my life and in other people's lives and let it be done on earth as it is in heaven." Well, how is God's kingdom done in heaven? I tell you one thing, it's, it's not done with objections. When the Lord tells the angels to do something, they don't question it. They don't say, well, I'm not going to do it. They had one that did that, he got booted out of heaven. His name is Lucifer and he took a lot of the angels with him. They're the demons. So when God expects something to be done in heaven, it will be done, you guarantee that, or God does. It will be done exactly as he desires. Whatever his wish is, whatever his plans are, it will be done. And he says, let it be done on earth as it is done in heaven. You are to be submissive to the Lord, and you are to let him rule and reign over your life. Warren Wiersbe says, this prayer begins with God's interest and not ours, God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. And we have no right to ask God for anything that will dishonor his name, Delay his kingdom or disturb his will on earth. Jesus again set the example for us in the fourth chapter of the, Ma- of the Gospel of Matthew. He's out in the wilderness. He's been tempted 40 days and 40 nights. The devil comes to him and said, look, you're the son of God. He says, if you're the son of God, the word if means since you are, it's not a question mark. The devil knew who he was. He knew before the world was ever created. They were all together in heaven. He knew who Jesus was. And he was saying, since you are the Son of God, you've been out here fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. You must be hungry. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So he wasn't seeking to do his own will. He was sent to do the will of the Father. In fact, later Jesus would say, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's on the eve of his crucifixion. And uh, he's praying there. Three times he prayed. Uh, Drops of blood comes from his face. Uh, He's under such great stress and burden. He cries out, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Our Lord's priority was always to do the Father's will that his kingdom might come. Someone else has said, prayer is a mighty instrument. Not for getting man's will done in heaven, but getting God's will done here on this earth. So we're to do his kingdom. First the spiritual and then the temporary. Not only his kingdom, but his Righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. To seek his righteousness means that you seek to live as God would have you to live, to require you to live. uh, Peter tells us in his first epistle, uh, quoting the words of the Lord, be ye holy for I am holy. The word holy, as we sang a moment ago, holy, 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 literally means unique, one of a kind. He is the holy son of God because there's only one son of God that Jesus is. There's no other one like him. He's the only begotten uh, Son of the Father, the one, only one of a kind. And when the angels were singing in Isaiah chapter 9, when the year the King Uzziah died and Isaiah saw a glimpse of the Lord, holy, 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 they could have just as, as easily have said, different, 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 unique, 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 separated, 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 because God is unique. God is holy. God is separate from everything else. There's only one God. There's not another God in the entire universe. And so he is holy, and he expects us to come out from among the world, he said, and be ye holy, be ye separated from the world. You're not of this world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. Live like it. Say no to sin. Say no to temptation. And let the the righteousness of the Lord Jesus rule in your heart. There were seven men. I want you to see a picture here of these seven men here. They're all dressed in Chinese clothing. These seven men are known as the, the Cambridge Seven. Uh, these seven men, back the, the years, uh, go back with me for a few moments in, in time to 1887. These seven men are graduating, in this picture, they've just graduated from Cambridge University in England. All seven of these men have committed themselves to go to China as missionaries. And so they decided to take their pictures together, and so they've come to be known as the Cambridge Seven. Uh, Two men, I only have time to to discuss briefly with this, two of these men. One of them's name is C.T. Studd. His real name or full name was Charles Thomas Studd. Uh, He was one of the seven. He he wrote a little poem. That poem says, Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Reminded me of the words of 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul talks about the foundation upon which we build our lives. And he used two different kinds of material, wood, hay, and stubble, and gold and silver and precious metal. And he talked about the day of judgment. Judgment. How that on the day of judgment, when you stand before the Lord, if you're a Christian, you won't stand before the great white throne judgment, but you will stand before what's called the Bema seat of Christ, and you will be held accountable for your life. And if you have spent your life, if you have lived your life uh, in ways that could be classified as wood, hay, and stubble, God's going to put a match to it, and it's going to burn up in front of you right there. All you're going to have is what maybe the clothes you have that's on you, which would be the robe of righteousness. That's it. The smell of smoke will be on your clothes. It'll be like a man just barely escaping out of his house. It's on fire, and he's standing out there in front of his house watching everything go up and smoke. All he's got is his clothes on his back. He's, he's safe, but that's it. And some of you will be that same way. You'll be in heaven. You'll just barely be there, all right, because what you're striving for and working for in life is wood, hay, and stubble, and it's not going to last for eternity. But if you build on your foundation the things that are worthy and eternal value Precious stones, silver and gold, the things that are last, only what you do for Christ will last, that's it. One of the other men was a, name, a man by the name of William Castles. William Castles. He um, was standing at the, uh, the train depot uh, waiting for his luggage to be loaded onto the train so they go to the boat and get on the boat. It is said that he wrote on every single piece of his luggage Two words, God first. God first. You know, before a man can put those two words on his luggage, he's got to put them in his heart. You're not going to put it on a piece of luggage and not mean it unless it's first in your heart. So first in his heart, God's first. God's first. God's first. First the spiritual and then the temporal. The third thing, first judge yourself and then judge your brother. Matthew chapter seven, look at verse one. Do not judge so that you will not be judged for in the way that you judge you will be judged and by your standard of measurement it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye or how can you say to your brother, let me get the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. If our Lord had a sense of humor, I think certainly this is one of the places where it is recorded. I think, I think he, he enjoyed a good humor. That's why I put humor in my devotionals. I, I think God intends for us to laugh. and I think his, this, I, he was serious But can you imagine here you are, you got a big old plank in your eye and you can't see anything and you're trying to get a little tiny speck of dust out of your brother's eye? Come on, get real. You can't do that. He said, what you'd need to do, first of all, get the plank out of your own eye. First, do that. Take care of yourself. Don't pass judgment and criticism on other people. You don't know what's going on in their lives. You don't know why they're really doing what they're doing or saying what they're saying. You've never walked a mile in their moccasins. You don't know. Who died left you in charge for you to be critical of what other people are doing or saying or the kind of lifestyle that they had. And Jesus said, hey, look at your own self first and take care of your own self. Now, he wasn't saying you couldn't help another person because the Bible is full of admonitions for us to do that. Galatians chapter 6 Paul says there are certain burdens that we need to carry for ourselves but then he also says there are burdens that we need to help other people carry and he says if you see a brother who's in fault about something if you're spiritual you ought to go to that person and help them and help them. There was a man who lived also back in the 1800's by the name of Sir Percival Lowell. He was a wealthy man and he was a dedicated astronomer. He built a telescope to look at the stars and uh, he came infatuated with the planet we call Mars. And uh, when he was looking through his huge giant telescope at the planet Mars, he saw canals. Uh, running down and across the planet of, of Mars. He, he, he came to the conclusion that at one time there was another race of people far wiser and superior to the human race on Earth who lived on Mars. And he spent the whole rest of his life looking at these lines and canals on the surface of Mars. And come to find out The truth of the matter was there were no lines on the planet of Mars. They were the blood vessels of his own eyeballs. (laughs) And every time he looked through the telescope, he saw those blood vessels. He thought, the lines on Mars. There's a name for it today, and people who have problems with that, it's called Lowell's Syndrome. You can go to any eye doctor, optometrist, whatever, they'll tell you what it is. It's Lowell's syndrome. You're seeing something that ain't there. (laughs) I wonder sometimes if that's what we do when we look at other people. When really it's our glasses that are dirty or scarred up or our eyeballs. We just really think we see something and it's not there. It's not there. So be careful. Judge yourself before you do others. Number four, first what Christ wants and then what you want. Matthew chapter eight for this. Matthew chapter eight, verse 21. In Matthew eight, 21 and 22, Jesus is, is talking to a, an individual uh, who has come to him and he's, he's saying, teacher, I, w- I want to be your disciple I want to follow you. I'll follow you to the ends of the earth. I'll go with you wherever you want to go. And in verse 20, Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, uh, permit me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now, what was going on here between this man who said, well, let me go bury my father. Had his father just died? I mean, if so, Jesus is wrong here to say, well, he's cruel to say, well, you know, let let other people take care of that. You you come follow me. I don't think that's what he's meaning. I think what the man is saying here uh, that I, I am obligated as a son to help my father as long as he is alive in the business that he is involved in. And I need to stay with him until he dies. Well, when is he going to die? Well, nobody knows but God. It could be a long time. It might be 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. Who knows? It's not going to be today. It's not going to be tomorrow. And so, Lord, I, I just need to stay here, help my dad in the business. When he dies, then the will will be read and we'll divide up the inheritance. And then I'll come and follow you. And Jesus is saying, I need you now. It wasn't requiring anything of him that it didn't require of others. When you go back and read, I believe it's in the fourth chapter of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going about selecting his 12 apostles. And he goes to Simon Peter and John and Andrew. These guys are fishermen. They're out there mending their nets because you can't catch a fish if there's holes in your net. So they're mending the nets. And Jesus walks up to them and he says, follow me. And the Bible says, immediately they left their nets. Follow Jesus. So he is saying, don't do what you want to do. You do what Jesus wants you to do. You you don't put off following him. Follow me. There was another man recorded in the 18th chapter of Luke's gospel. We refer to him as the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus falling falling at his feet and said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know the commandments, keep them, You'll, you'll be all right. He said, well, ever since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, I've kept all those commandments. Jesus, looking into his heart, and, you know, he's the only one that can do that, saw that he really had a love for his possessions, and he put those love, that love for his possessions first in his life. And Jesus was saying, well, you need to take your possessions and go sell them and give the money to the poor, and then come take up your cross and follow me. And it says the man went away grieved because he had great riches. The disciples scratched their heads and asked Jesus, can a rich man get into heaven? Jesus said it's difficult. It's possible, but it's difficult because it's a, you know, it's a problem when your possessions begin to possess you instead of you possessing your possessions. And so this man went away sad because he, he didn't want to get rid of those things and he, he wanted to do what he wanted to do. And, you know, Jesus is not looking at your ability or your inability. He's looking at your availability. Are you available to the Lord? You remember when when Moses stood at the burning bush and and the Lord gave him the command and and then the order said, You're going to lead my people out of Egypt, out of the bondage that's there? Moses began to offer all kinds of excuses. One of the things that the Lord said to, to Moses, or asked Moses, said, hey, Moses, what you got in your hand? He said, I got a staff. He said, throw it down on the ground. He threw it down on the ground, the thing became a snake. That's when I'd have left. I don't like snakes, you know that. All snakes are poisonous. Even rubber snakes are poisonous. <laughs> I think a good shovel or a shotgun, real, real good to send them to snake heaven or hell, wherever it is they go. <laughs> and then the Lord said to Moses, pick it up by its tail. Well, I think the Lord done lost his mind. <laughs> I'm not going to pick up an old snake. I'm not going to do it. If he's dead, I'll pick it up with a hole or a shovel, but I'm not going to reach down with my hand and pick up a snake. But seriously, God said to him, throw the staff down on the ground. He did, and it turned into a snake. And then Jesus, uh, the Lord said, reach down and pick it up. He reached down by the tail. It, it became a staff again. And if you read the first several chapters of, of the book of Exodus, The Lord says, the staff that is in your hand, but it isn't too long until the Bible begins to say it was the Lord's staff in Moses' hand. What have you got in your hand? What has God entrusted to you? Are you using it for his glory? Are you using it in a way that will bring honor to him? It's not a matter of, if I get off work in time, I'll be there. If I'm not too tired, I'll come. If I can work it in, I'll be there. No. It's a matter of doing what God's called you to do. First what Christ wants, and then what you want. The fifth and final thing is first the inside and then the outside. In the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, verses 25 and 26, the 23rd chapter of Matthew is what is called the woe chapter, W-O-E, woe. Woe, you hypocrites. And By the way, uh, the word hypocrite, you know, we use that word rather freely. We talk about the hypocrites in the church, hypocrites here and so forth. Did you know that the only person in the Bible who used the word hypocrite was Jesus. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find the hypocrite all through those pages. It's always spoken by Jesus. It's never spoken by anybody else, never. Which says to me that you and I don't have the right to call other people hypocrites. Again, we don't know what's, what's going on in their lives. We don't know what's in their hearts. How dare you call another person hypocrite? Who are you, God? God? You're not God. And and so we need to be careful when we start calling people hypocrites. Jesus called them hypocrites. Why? Because you remember over in the second chapter of the Gospel of John, the Bible says that Jesus did not need anyone to testify on behalf of other men because he knew what was in men. Jesus knows what's in your heart. I don't know what's in your heart. Now I can tell sometimes by your actions and by your words there's something rotten in your heart but that's not for me to judge. That's for the Lord. Uh, But but Jesus Jesus didn't need somebody. Hey, Lord, let me tell you about Peter. Let me tell you about John. Let me tell you about James or Bartholomew or Matthew. Jesus didn't need their testimony to, uh, to give a reference as to whether or not they were qualified. And God doesn't need anybody to tell the Lord about other people. The Lord knows what's in our hearts. And so here he does come, however, and he refers to the scribes and the Pharisees as hypocrites. And look at verse 25, Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgences. You blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. So Jesus is saying you need to clean up the inside. You're worrying about the outside. He talks about the sepulchers, how they whitewashed the sepulchers to make them look nice, clean on the outside. On the inside, they were full of rotting, decaying flesh and bones. You wouldn't eat out of a dirty plate or drink out of a dirty cup. You want the inside of it to be clean and also the outside of it. It's not either or, it's both and. But Jesus said if you're going to start, you start with the inside, because from the inside of the heart that comes out of the mouth, all all of the the sins that he lists there, the profanities and all the other things that, that come out of our mouths, it's like the old proverbial thing that's what's down in the bottom of the well comes up in the bucket. And you can, you can listen to an individual talk and just in a matter of a few moments, you know what kind of things are going on in their heart because their, their tongue, their language, the words that come out of their mouths reveal the true them. And so Jesus says you need to start on the inside and you need to get clean on the inside and then once you're clean on the inside, uh, then the other will take care of itself. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked, who can know it? Well, God can. And the psalmist said of the Lord, the Lord says, I search the heart. And so the Lord's the only one qualified to look on the inside of you and to cleanse you. And all of us need to be cleansed. We need to be, you remember when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples and he came to Peter and Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, if you, if you if you don't let me wash your feet, you can have nothing of me. And Peter of course, always exaggerating, jumping the gun. He said, well, Lord, wash me all over. And Jesus said, well, once you've had a bath, you don't need to be washed again all over. Your feet get dirty. So just your feet need to be washed. What's he talking about there? Well, they didn't have sidewalks and highways like we do. They had dirt streets and dirt roads. And you could just walk down the street to visit a neighbor. And the time you got there, your feet would be dirty. And you walked into a person's house, they had a servant there to wash your feet. He was going to give you a whole bath. I think what he's saying is, once you get saved, you're saved. But that doesn't mean you won't ever sin again. And so as a child of God, yes, you're going to slip and fall. You're going to do things you shouldn't. You're going to say things you shouldn't. So what do you do? It doesn't destroy your relationship, but it does interfere with your fellowship with God. And so you just say, Lord, I'm your child. What I said was wrong. Please forgive me. Cleanse me of it. What I did was wrong. Please forgive me. Cleanse me of it. So clean the inside, and then the outside will take care of itself. Let me close with this. I want to share one other individual's life story with you briefly because my time is up. A man by the name of William Borden. No Borden's milk, uh, Elsie the cow, Borden's milk. This is William Borden. He was a son to one of the Borden family. There was some Borden family members who lived down in Galveston, Texas, back during the days, uh, during the time of the Civil War. One of uh, William Borden's uncles came up with a way to pasteurize milk. And uh, it became in great demand during the Civil War. They got wealthy selling that kind of milk in containers to keep it from spoiling so the soldiers would have something to drink when they were on the battlefield. Now, William's father uh, was, had invested in silver mining up in Colorado. He became a multi-millionaire. William Borden's mother became a Christian. And she led William to the Lord. And every night, she and he would get together and would read the scriptures. And over time, William Borden uh, became a child of God. Uh, He uh, went to Yale University and uh, became a devout Christian, helped people with Bible studies. Uh, By the time he had graduated from Yale University, there were a 1,000 students that were coming to his weekly Bible Bible teaching. Uh, When he made his decision uh, to become a missionary, his heart's desire was to go to um, Egypt, and, 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 and witness to the Muslims. And uh, when he made his decision, uh, he, he left his inheritance. When he, when he got, I think it was about 18 or 19 years old, he inherited a million dollars. He gave it all away. He wrote, you know, he, he went on and, and, and he was, when he graduated from Yale, his folks sent him on a world tour all around. And he became so burdened for the Islamic people that uh, he decided he'd go to Egypt and be a missionary and witness to them. He was 25 years of age when he got to Cairo, Egypt. He contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. He's buried in the American cemetery in Cairo, Egypt. After he died, uh, the people who had taken care of his body found his Bible and they sent it to his parents. And when his parents opened it up, they found the words, No Reserve, and a date placing the note shortly after he renounced his fortune in favor of missions. At a later place in the Bible, they found the words, No Retreat. Dated shortly after his father told him that because he gave away his inheritance, he would never let him work in his company again. No reserves, no retreat. And shortly before he died in Egypt, he added the phrase no regrets, no regrets, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Jesus first. Is Jesus first in your life? Ahead of your family? I'm not saying you've got to neglect your family. I'm just saying, I'm saying if you put Jesus first, the family's going to be right up there next to it. What about your work? You're putting Jesus first in your work. Well, you say, I don't work. Well, what about home on the telephone? When you're talking to your friends and your neighbors? When you go to the grocery store? When you do whatever you do? Are you putting Jesus first? First things first. No reserves. No regrets. Let's bow together. Father, you're the only one who can look into our hearts and know what priorities we have. Sometimes we get our priorities all mixed up and we, we give top-rate first priorities to second-rate causes. And the result is all kinds of problems in our lives. We can't hang on to the world and hang on to you too. We have to make a decision to put Jesus first because that's the only place he will occupy. And so Holy Spirit, I pray today that as we come to this time of invitation for those who are here and need to to make a decision to get things right between themselves and you, may they do it, whether it's just seated where they are or when they stand to sing in their hearts, they'll hear they need to come forward. That Holy Spirit is your job, your work. Ours is to be sensitive to you and your presence in our lives and your will and follow that will, whatever it may be. If there's someone here who's never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, Holy Spirit, bring about a work of conviction. Help them to realize their lostness, their sinfulness for which Jesus died and wants to be their Savior. And may they open up their hearts to him and put him first is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me please? I'll be here at the front if the Lord is leading you to come.